0: Father, be near to us as we look into your word. Would you build us up in wisdom and help us to know your will? Would you encourage and enliven us by your spirit to live into all that you have called us? Admonish us for the ways that we have lost hold of your truth and help us to be light to the world around us that so desperately needs you, that so desperately needs your word and your truth. Yeah, Father, be among us today. Be in my words that we might learn from your word and be drawn to love you better. In Jesus' name. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. Um, We're going to start in Ephesians 5. Paul gives this imperative uh, to pursue wisdom. In Ephesians 5, and that's kind of going to be our jumping off point, and then we'll look at at other texts in Ephesians as we work through. Um, But starting, (coughs) excuse me, starting in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 15 to 17, it says this, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'll read it one more time. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I think that uh, read on their own, these verses are a, a beautiful exhortation to wisdom, and to obedience to the Lord. And I think they even function as as an encouragement to what we might call cultural discernment. right? How do we live wisely? But how do we live wisely even in broken days, in evil days as Paul says. But I think read on their own these verses could also seem somewhat empty. They could seem like uh, an empty tautology saying, you know, well, Yes, I'm called to be wise, but but how do I become wise? Right? You'd be forgiven after reading these verses for asking, you know, that's great, but how do I know what the will of the Lord is? How do I become wise? Or maybe you're uh, a little more like me, and you pride yourself a little too much on how many thick books you have on your bookshelf, and you read this verse, and you're maybe a little presumptuous, and you think, well, that's great. Thanks, Paul. Good one. Be wise. I'll take it from here. But Paul doesn't leave us either presumptuous or with unanswered questions. He doesn't leave us on our own, grasping to know what wisdom is, and he doesn't allow us to impose our own definitions of wisdom onto his exhortation. When we read the whole book of Ephesians, we realize that this verse that we've just read, it doesn't stand alone, but it's more like the Climactic recurrence of a a theme, a melody, in a symphony. And I don't know uh, classical music well, but I understand that classical pieces are created by weaving together and modulating and and repeating different musical themes or phrases. uh, Sections of melody, and at the end, is, is, is this resulting beautiful unified whole. And the book of Ephesians is actually structured in a sort of similar way. The themes weave together and build on each other, and the terms come back in and out building and, and clarifying them with each repetition. So it's, it's a complex structure, but it's a beautiful structure, a logical structure, and it's, it's um, this sort of symphonic structure that, that analogy is often used of the book of Romans, but I think it works equally well with, with the book of Ephesians. And so just to, to give you a, a sense of where we're going today, a sort of structure or, or outline, Basically what we're going to do is we're just going to pick out a few key places in Ephesians where that melody comes up, where the theme of wisdom or foolishness, wisdom or unwisdom comes up within the text. Um, And then we're just going to try to create two simple definitions out of what we read, uh, a definition of wisdom in Ephesians and a definition of foolishness or unwisdom. So if that sounds good, we'll we'll keep going. Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 23. This is the longer text that we'll look at today, and I think we have a a slide for it as well. Yeah, that's great. Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 23 says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. In this passage, Paul pairs two simple words. And I would argue that these two words, put together, are two of the most shockingly countercultural words you could speak in 21st century Canada. Maybe even some of the more offensive words you could speak in 21st century Canada. I think maybe you, you even picked up on it from my emphasis on the way through, but these two words are deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. I would argue that one of the very central ideas of the modern world, of what it means to be a modern person, is to believe that our desires, our emotions, our hearts, we sometimes say, cannot deceive us, right? the the phrases are, are burned into our minds. Trust your heart. Listen to what's inside. Your heart will guide you. These lines sound familiar because they're around us everywhere. And what that results in is that when a modern person seeks to decide what is true, or what is real, or what is good, when we seek to decide if something is right or wrong, we often look inside ourselves we look into our hearts. And by that, we actually often mean simply ask your desires what's true or good. The, uh, the brilliant Russian author named Dostoevsky, writing, you know, maybe 150 years ago now, he sort of diagnosed, he, he offered a diagnosis of this, this intellectual illness, this pathology at, at the base of modern culture, and he puts it into the, the mouth of this brilliant old monk named Father Zasima. But Dostoevsky wrote this. um, You have desires, and so satisfy them. Don't be afraid of satisfying them, and even multiply your desires. That is the modern doctrine of the world. That is the modern doctrine of the world. I don't know if it's come up, but that's okay. You heard it. I think if that was true in 1870 Russia, it's only exponentially more true for a whole number of factors in today's Canada, right? Another line, be true to yourself. A sort of truism of the world around us, but what we mean by that is listen to your desires, right? Or make sure that your actions are in line with your feelings. In modern culture in, in our own culture, our desires define us in many ways. And it gets more complicated and and messy because in modern culture specifically, our sexual desires define us, right? To the modern person, your sexual desires are your identity. Culture around us says that if you want to be an authentic person, and if you want to be liberated, you need to be free to follow your every desire and your every lust. The problem is this, where secular culture says your desires should direct and define you, scripture says that your desires may deceive you and destroy you. Secular culture says that following your desires will liberate you. Scripture says that your desires may enslave you. Where secular culture says that uncritically following your desires will make you feel whole, Scripture says that uncritically trusting your desires will rob you of peace. Where secular culture says that if you want to be enlightened, follow your desires. Scripture says that if you follow your desires, your mind will be darkened and your heart will be hardened. And to use Paul's language, you'll be alienated from the life of God. When we see this sharp antipathy, this the sharp contrast between our culture and the patterns of thinking and the teaching uh, of Scripture. I think maybe we can understand why in Ephesians 5.17, Paul says that the days are evil. And we can realize that insofar as we idolize desire, insofar as we idolize emotions, we're also living in broken times. One more way to to think about this is... uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been in a, a discussion, maybe a, a polite debate between people, maybe a, even a, a gentle argument, however you'd call it, and, and the, the discussion comes to a close when one person says, well, I just feel that that's right, or I just feel that that's wrong. Or maybe you've said that at different times. I'm, I'm sure I have. <laughs> but you've reached, at that point, a, a, a point in the conversation where nothing can progress further you've reached, in some ways, the sort of ethical first principle of modern culture. Right, our emotions are, or our feelings define for us what's right and wrong. And the philosopher Alastair MacIntyre coined the phrase emotivism to, de- to describe this trend, to describe modern ethics based in our emotions or our desires. Right? So again, culturally, Desires have become the foundation of our identity and our standards of goodness and truth. I think we, as I said, we too often idolize desire. We place our own desires or emotions where God ought to be. We don't have time to go all the way back through the passage I read from Ephesians 4, but just to point it out quickly, there's there's actually a really dense logical structure to those few verses it kind of goes like this, it goes that unwisdom comes from hard-heartedness, and hard-heartedness comes from sensuality, and sensuality comes from deceitful desires. And so the beginning, the root of that unwisdom, the root of that folly, is listening to lying desires. So that's our first definition. I think that there's a slide for this one, yeah. I'm using the term unwisdom, by the way, because in, in the Greek it's literally a sophia, so sophia being wisdom and a being the negation. So it's literally what it is to be unwise or to negate wisdom. But I think to negate wisdom, if we look at these verses, is to uncritically follow your desires, right? To uncritically listen to your heart. To uncritically assume that your fallen intuitions are an unimpeachable standard of goodness or truth. Ephesians 2, 1 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind another recurrence of this theme in Ephesians, the passions of the flesh. This new term comes in. And I wanted to, to bring in this verse specifically because that term passions, it comes up. And I think it, there's a really unique history to the word passions even. If you encounter the word passions or passionate in ancient literature in, or even in early modern literature, someone described is described as passionate there's a reasonable chance that that person is both acting irrationally and is a danger to themselves or others, right? When you think passionate in this traditional sense, you can think uh, of Romeo from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, right? There's a point where one of Romeo's friends yells out, madman, passion, Romeo. Madman, passion, Romeo. And if you know the story, you know that things don't go well for for Romeo. There's this sense of the word passion where passion is a destructive and an irrational force, something that ought to be controlled, something that ought to be tamed by reason. Today, it's very different, right? If somebody says, wow, you're a really passionate person, they don't mean that you're on the edge. They mean that you're, you're driven, right? More than likely they're saying, it's a compliment. They're saying that you're, you're motivated. You care about the things that you're doing, and of course, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think there's something interesting in the history of that word. Because passions went from... um, Yeah, passions, our deep desires or emotions went from something that needed to be tamed by reason to something that is meant to guide our lives or our identity, even, again. Right? Because today we're all supposed to be passionate about something, right? And it's our, this passion that's meant to drive us into our, our careers or our activities, the things that we spend much of our lives doing. In the modern world, we focus on the interior life, on the psychological life, on the life of desires or passions. And then we're asked to figure out who we are and what we're going to do out of those things we happen to feel. And I think maybe, maybe uh, you can picture a moment Uh, a young person that you know or yourself or anyone really, where where you kind of just stop and you say, well, I just don't know what I'm passionate about. And by that you mean I don't know what I'm supposed to do or who I'm supposed to be. I think this emphasis on passion, this emphasis on our desires actually puts an, an undue burden on us to come up with meaning for our lives out of inside as opposed to from elsewhere from God. So, and I think that that results in a couple things. I think our focus on passion results in a couple things. We will, one, potentially will uncritically follow our desires into unworthy callings, right? Because our, our passions can deceive us. Or more likely, we crack under the burden of trying to conjure up meaning for our lives out of nowhere. Right? We feel lost and incapable of pursuing anything because nothing that feels worthwhile excites us, impassions us, and we feel that we're supposed to find meaning for our lives out of those passions. I hope that made some sense. <laughs> but the, the end goal is this, so hear this piece. It's that we're not meant to find meaning for our lives in an activity or in a career that we happen to feel strongly towards. We're not meant to find the meaning of our lives in ourselves, in our passions, or in our desires. We're called to be like Christ, and we will be deeply satisfied when we seek him, and when we seek to be like him. Everything else is fluff and circumstance. Paul says everything else is a clanging gong. Our calling is to love like Jesus loved. That's the meaning of our lives. And that can be our rightly directed passions. The, the end of the passage we read earlier in Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, It says this, you know, we are called to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, And to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So our calling is to be created after the likeness of God. Jesus is the likeness of God. So our calling, your calling, is to be like Jesus, to pursue righteousness and holiness. One more recurrence of the melody of the theme. Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2, says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. In the book of Ephesians, we are called out of, uncritically trusting our desires. And we're called to look like Jesus. Jesus to humbly serve, and to sacrifice our lives for others. And so that's our second definition. Wisdom is, in in the book of Ephesians, I think, is to follow Jesus into sacrificial love and humility. Again, we're called out of uncritically trusting our desires, and we're called to follow Jesus into sacrificial love and humility. For the past little while um, I've been doing what maybe you would cl- classify as, as railing against desires a little bit, against emotions or passions. Um, and I do wanna clarify that while well, trusting our fallen desires is the root of, of foolin- foolishness, that we are as Christians by no means wholesale against our desires or our emotions. Right? If we were Roman philosophers, stoicists, Maybe that's the route that we would take. There would be this wholesale rejection of anything that we feel as valuable. But that is definitely not what Paul is saying. And it's not what Christians believe either. Right? We don't need to ask God to turn off our passions or our desires or our emotions. We need to ask God to redeem our emotions and to redirect them to himself. To redirect our affections to their worthy object. Paul calls us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. What does that mean? I think that means praying something like this. God, I know in my mind that you are worthy of all my affection and all my desire and all my passion. Would you redirect the things that I love so that I can look like you, put on the new self, and serve the world around me? And how do we put on the new self? That's one more phrase from our text today. Paul says that we should put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I think Paul actually gives us two hints and they're kind of weaved through the passages that we've looked at. Two hints on how to put on the new self. The first is to speak truth to each other. Ephesians 4.25 says this, Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I think we're called to drench ourselves and those around us in the truths of Scripture so that when our desires do lie to us, because they will, we can know the difference between the word of God and our own fallen intuitions. Say that again. I think that we're called to drench ourselves and those around us in the truths of Scripture so that when our desires lie to us, we know the difference between the Word of God and our own fallen intuitions. So Paul says, speak the truth to each other. Speak the words of Scripture to each other. The second one, the second hint that Paul gives us as to how to live, to put on the new self, to live wisely, is is to sing. And I love this one. Uh, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And to be honest, the first time that I, I read those verses, I was confused after why this sort of heady, heavy exhortation to wisdom Paul encourages singing. It seems out of place. It seems a little odd. And then it kind of clicked that that's the reason we do the weird sing-along thing every week. <laughs> right? And my, my dad was a worship pastor. I've grown up playing worship, and I, I love worship music, and I love to, to sing together in a congregation, but it, culturally, we have to admit it's a little odd. There's not too many places that host weekly sing-alongs. <laughs> right? It just doesn't really happen. But we do it, Because through worship, as we choose to spend time exalting God together, it reforms our desires, right? And if we're doing it in the same room, it can reform the desires of the person next to us, right? Through worship, as we choose to spend time exalting God together, it reforms our desires. And I wrote in here, worship is like emotional and mental weightlifting. It trains our hearts to feel what it ought to feel and our mind to know what it ought to know. Worship trains our desires. It trains us to place our affections on the right thing and the right person. It trains us to love the right person. It trains us not to listen to our lying desires, our desires that can deceive us. And it calls us to love Christ. A recap. Just quickly. Two definitions that I hope that you can take with you that I hope maybe you'll repeat to your family or friend in the car on the way home. And unwisdom or foolishness is to uncritically follow your desires. Unwisdom or foolishness is to uncritically follow your desires. And wisdom is to follow Jesus into sacrificial love and humility. Let's pray together. Father God, would you Help us to contemplate your word and to implement it into our lives. Would you, would you admonish us? Would you help us? Would you guide us with your truth? Would we be uh, inspired to pursue you, to pursue Christ likeness over our own wants? And would we trust and would we know that in that we will find our full satisfaction Be with us as we worship. Would you lift our eyes up to you? Would you train us to love you as we ought to love you? pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you, you, Daniel. I'm gonna invite you now to stand and join us.